I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, last night I got to be at historic Kinnick Stadium. Anybody else get to go down there last night for the game? Whew, man, oh man, it's almost enough to make a guy a Hawkeye. Almost. <laughs> I gotta tell you, that was a great game. There was uh, several moments that were qu- I found quite fascinating, and one of them was at the beginning. They, um, you know, they do all this pregame stuff, but they had a a big moment of silence for Tyler Sash and um, one of the marbles, I think it was, Roy Marble. And uh, I th- found it fascinating because there's, what's the capacity there? 70,000. 70, it wasn't quite a sellout, just so you know. Um, so there's about 70,000 people there, and the guy says, okay, we're going to have a moment of silence. And the uh, screens go black, and the PA system goes silent, the band stops playing. Everybody in that place was quiet. It really was silent. You know what they were doing in that moment? They were telling everybody, slow down. Stop all this other stuff that you're doing and focus on this one thing for a moment. I found it quite moving that it could become that quiet that quick. And it gave me hope for us because part of the thing that we're working on this fall is trying to slow down. Because we have all kinds of input streaming at us constantly, all this stuff constantly bombarding us, and sometimes it feels like we cannot slow down. In fact, I had someone this week tell me, that's not going to happen. I'm at this stage of life. I got all this stuff, all these kids, all these activities. It's not going to happen. But this little moment gave me uh, real hope that it could happen for all of us, that we could find these ways to do that. So we want to start doing that right now in this time that we have together by looking at a little passage of Scripture together from Luke chapter 4. So if you've got your Bible with you, you can take that out or pull a Bible out of the chair or open up your electronic Bible. Luke chapter 4. We looked at the first part of this chapter last week. Now we're going to start with verse 14. Luke 4, verse 14. Luke 4, starting with verse 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, And the news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? This is God's word and it's true and we can rely on it. I've got a little picture to start off with here. I'd like you to look at this. Can anybody tell me what this is a picture of? The flood of 2008. Okay, as soon as you see something like that, you kind of get it, right? And especially if you are from around here, 
I'm guessing that a picture like this can start to bring up a bunch of memories and maybe even some emotional response, maybe even a physical response, because the flood of 2008 was such an epic thing in this place. People in this community all around were affected by it. And so before the flood came, as we were getting ready, we went and sandbagged. And while the flood was going on, we opened up our homes and took in refugees from the flood. And then after the flood, we did all kinds of things, including mucking out tons of this junk that fell into the basements of all of our homes. The flood was a big thing for people who are in this place. And if you're not from this place, you maybe don't quite get it to the same degree because you don't have a sense of place. This is what we want to talk about this morning, about a sense of place. And the people who actually researched this tell us that there's a lot of contributing factors that give us a sense of the place that we live in. It can be memories, it can be people, it can be events, it can be even the landscape or the weather, the climate. That all adds to a sense of place. And the people who research this tell us that to have a good sense of place is really important. This summer, I, early in the summer, my daughter Shana, who had been living for the last year in Seattle, came home and I picked her up at the airport in Des Moines and we were driving back to Cedar Rapids across Interstate 80 and as she looked out the windows at all the rolling fields of corn, she says, I'm back in Iowa. <laughs> it doesn't look like that in Seattle if you're driving around that area. It's completely different. You get a different sense of place just by the terrain that you're surrounded by. Now one of the things that these people who study this kind of thing have discovered that is having a good sense of place leads to health. If you feel like you have a place and you understand the place you're in, it makes you feel like you belong and it gives you a sense of stability. It gives you a sense of continuity. You feel like I have a, a place to be. It's safe for me to be here. And so it will not surprise you to learn that the Bible when it invites us to cultivate the community in the patient way of Jesus, one of the things that the Bible draws attention to is the importance of place. That we are specific people with specific missions in specific places. And this is what I want us to try to look at today as we figure out what it means for us to slow down. Can we become people who are more aware of our place? Can we develop a better sense of place? That's the question that I have for this morning. And to do that, I have kind of three sub-questions I want us to look at that I think will help us to develop our sense of place and then our sense of mission in that place. And the first question is this. What has God done in this place? This is a question about history. It's a question about what has there been in the past in this place. Now, if you understand Luke and his um, interest in writing, one of the things that he was very interested in was history. He's an historian. And so Luke was trying to like, get at the kind of what's behind, what got us to this place kind of questions. And you don't have to read very far into the book of Luke until you get to the idea that he was very interested in setting this story with specific people at a specific time in a specific place. I want to give you just a few verses as a kind of sampling of this. If you flip backwards to Luke chapter 1 and the fifth verse, you get this description. He's writing this book 
In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. What has he done in that one little sentence? He said, I'm locating this story in a specific people who lived at a specific time in a specific place. He actually gets even more specific in the very next chapter, Luke chapter 2. Jump ahead one chapter, Luke 2 verse 1. This is the beginning of a really familiar story we usually read at Christmas, but listen to how he sets this story up. We don't often focus on this. Luke 2, 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to be registered. Where is this story going to happen? This story is going to happen in the Roman world. Well, a particular guy named Caesar Augustus was in charge of counting people, and in order to get an accurate count, he sent everyone to their hometown. Luke wants to be careful to locate this story in a specific time in a specific place. Jump ahead one more chapter to Luke chapter 3. Luke does this a lot. In fact, it happened a little bit in the story that we just read uh, in Luke 4, but look at Luke 3. This is the most specific example in the whole book. Luke 3, 1. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... When Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of Itura, Traconitus, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching and baptizing repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Luke says... Place matters. We want to know who was in this story, and we want to know where they were when the story happened. It's going to shape the story. In fact, Luke is very conscientious about making sure we understand that this story that he's given flows in perfect continuity with the story that God has been telling throughout the whole Bible. This is just like another chapter in a long, ongoing story, and Luke wants us to know that's, that's the case. Now, often when I think about the story of Jesus, I think of it as this, like, kind of universal story that is true for all people in all times, that no matter where you are and no matter who you are and no matter what your circumstance, the story of Jesus is true for you. I like to think of the story of Jesus that way, and that is definitely the case. But it is also the case that Jesus and his story comes out of a particular time and a particular place. And as particular meeple, people encounter Jesus, he meets each one right where they are. We can't overlook the particulars of this. God works that way. God cares about place. And God cares about particular people in particular places. This is the way the story of the gospel continues to unfold throughout. God cares about the people in our place. He cares about you, and he cares about the people in your family. He cares about the people that you work with. He cares about the people that you go to school with. He cares about the people that you play around with. He cares about the 70,000 people in Kinnick Stadium. Maybe he cares about the people in Ames a little more, but he does care about the people. <laughs> the place matters. This is what Luke is trying to say to us. Our place matters, and the history of that place matters. And so we should pay attention to that. We are supposed to bring the good news 
into a particular place and we do that by paying attention to that place and kind of the history of that place, what got us to be where we got to be. So that the story of Jesus is told differently in Cedar Rapids than it is told in New York City, than it is told in rural China, than it is told in the jungle of Papua New Guinea. There's different people in different places experiencing different things with different history and they need to hear the gospel story in their place. And so that makes me wonder, as we're thinking about this slowdown, have we slowed down enough to pay attention to the people who live in our place and to their history, to how they got there and to how they've been shaped and formed as people? Have we been listening? Do we know our neighborhood and our community well enough to know what matters to them? Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up in a church that was about every five, five and a half years, we got a new pastor. And that was pretty typical in that day and age, that these pastors just kind of rotated in and out, which was kind of interesting because there's been some studies that have been done on this, and it says you don't really get a good sense of your place for seven years. That's when it starts. You start to understand the people and the history and the place and what's unfolding. I think we experienced that here. Um, We're actually coming up on an anniversary for us. Ten years ago, next week, we moved into this place. And I remember when we moved into this building, there was a lot of excitement, a lot of energy, a lot of enthusiasm. But you know what? It didn't feel right. We were used to the feel of this little place over on Gordon Avenue. And there had been lots of history there. A lot of really important things happened there. Our lives had been touched and shaped and molded in that place. And we missed it. And it actually took us a long time in this place, I'm going to say maybe seven years, before we really started to feel like, you know what, this is a place that's really significant. Because now we have history in this place too. And we did things to kind of revamp it to make it fit who we were as people. Place matters. And the places that we are called to carry out God's mission have history and they have a past. And as we pay attention to that, I think we can begin to understand a little more about what God wants to do in that specific place. And that actually leads me to the second question, which is, what is God doing in this place? And this is a question about the present. So once we've considered the past and where we've come from, we start to go, well, what's going on right now? What do we see God doing in this place? Past and present come together in this passage that we looked at in Luke chapter 4 because there's a history that brought this to the point where Jesus stands in the synagogue, as was his routine, and listens to this ancient text from Isaiah talking about the mission that God wants to accomplish in that place. Let's look at that again from Luke chapter 4. Jesus went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up and he read from the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and it said, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. And then he said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. He's just brought this ancient prophecy, this prediction of what God was going to do right now into the present. 
Jesus knew that the history of the place was important, but he also knew that God was active today in this place. Sometimes I wonder about us. Do we believe that God's mission is being fulfilled today in this place, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools, in our community, in our neighborhoods? Do we feel that God's mission is being accomplished today? To answer this question, I think we need to have a sense of the need that is in our community. We have to have an awareness of what's going on. And as you can guess, this kind of an awareness doesn't come quickly. You have to slow down and look around and pay attention. Well, sometimes need will slap you upside the face. But if you want to really get the sense of a whole community, you need to pay attention. This is what Jesus was doing. As he was carrying out God's mission in that place, he was thinking about the prophet Isaiah and this prediction. And he looked around and he saw in that place the poor, and he saw the oppressed, and he saw the captive, and he saw the blind, and he saw the prisoner. He saw people who had a need in that day, in that place. And so he brought good news to that need. He proclaimed the good news that God wants to give sight to the blind, that he wants to set the oppressed free, that he wants to visit with the sick and visit with those who are mourning, that he wants to help those who are needy, that he wants to walk with those who are poor. He saw that God was going to bring his mission that he had promised for all those generations and he was going to begin to fulfill it right there today. What specific needs do you see when you slow down enough to look at our community? I see a lot. God's been kind of working me over on some of this stuff, and actually some of this has been going on for a while as I look around and I begin to see those who are vulnerable in our community. And one of the groups of people that I've been really noticing for a while is children. That children can be very vulnerable. I know in my experience... Children are in good homes, nurtured by good parents, with given good opportunities for good education, and children have what they need. But I look around our community and I see a lot of children who do not have what they need. I had a conversation with someone over lunch just this week, and I heard about a two-year-old and a four-year-old who are in foster care. And the reason they're in foster care is because their mother has an alcohol addiction and their father has a meth addiction and they both have some mental health issues so the children were taken away and these parents are now getting to have supervised visits with their children but they're asking the question what can I do to get my children back and the first thing is they got to work on some of their addictive issues but they also when they were honest said we do not know how to be parents We did not have good parents. We've never seen a good parent. We have no idea how to be good parents. And I think about how hard it is to raise a two- and a four-year-old. I had to do that in a good setting. And it's hard work to raise little kids. I can't imagine what it's like to raise children with these other challenges. That's a need in our community. And I'd like to say that's a rare need. 
But the reality, as I'm understanding it, is it's not. It's really quite common. And so then I begin to wonder if we are going to pay attention to our community, to our neighborhood, what kind of needs are we going to see? And will we believe that today the promises of God could be filled in our community to address those particular needs? Pastor Allen was not here in 2008 for the flood, but he's had to endure a bunch of our stories about things that happened and the things that we did there. And I don't know if he got fed up with it one day or not, but he said, you know what, I'm looking around at the needs in our community, and it seems like it's like a flood. Maybe worse. Maybe worse. And do we respond? Have we slowed down enough to recognize them? And then do we believe that God wants to do something about that? And would we imagine that God could use us? Which brings me to my third question. The third question is about the future. What will God do? Or what does God want to do in this place? When we ask this question, we're starting to wonder about the power of the good news to transform a community, to transform our places, to transform our work and our homes and our schools, to make them the kind of place that God wants to be. And if we are convinced that God wants to reconcile what's broken, if he wants to fix all that is broken, if he wants to set right everything that's wrong, then then can we begin to envision what it would look like in our community, in our neighborhood, in the places where we live, if God would act How would that change? One of our key verses for this series is 2 Peter 3, 8, and 9, which talks about God's patient character, but his unrelenting desire for us. Listen again to these words. 2 Peter 3, verses 8 and 9. Do not forget this one thing, my dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but wanting everyone to come to eternal life. This is what God hopes for our future. This is the preferred future, that God wants everyone to come to him, that he wants to repair all that is broken, that he wants to reconcile or set right everything that is currently wrong with our world. And God is patient in carrying this out because he wants to bring anyone who would come into that repair. And when we start to look at the world this way, I think it makes us hopeful. We begin to see the world through the lens of grace and through the lens of God's love and God's compassion and God's patience. Like, well, he's got us here for a reason. And that's the other thing we see, that he uses us to bring about that reconciliation. And that's part of the reason why he's so patient, because he knows he's got this plan and it's involving us and he needs to keep spurring us on to envision the things that he could do so that our world is transformed. How often do we slow down enough to envision what God wants to do with our community? How God wants to reconcile the brokenness in our world? How often do we slow down enough to just to start picture that and imagine what that could look like and imagine what we could do about that? As I was thinking about it this week, I came across a group of people that I became curious about and so I started to research it just a little bit and I learned about this group who does a really good job or about imagining the future 
and what God could do. They actually became so good at this that even though they lived under extreme hardship and dealt with poverty and abuse and violence on a regular basis, even though this group on a daily basis had to deal with injustice and they experienced brutality, yet as a whole the group refused to become bitter but instead remained hopeful. And they would envision God working based on verses like this from Amos 5.24, which says, Let justice roll down like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. So this people, even though they were living with great injustice and bearing the burden of that injustice all the time, they imagined a better day when God was going to set this right. And they would memorize verses like Amos 5.24, Let justice roll down like a river, and they would actually sing songs that imagined, though they were sometimes weak, though they were sometimes struggling, though they were sometimes faced with great difficulty, they believed that the future was going to be better because God was going to accomplish his mission in that place. Would you like to guess what kind of group I'm talking about? Slaves. They lived in some of the most difficult places imaginable. And yet they believed that God was going to set things right. One day, and they had a keen awareness of their history and where they had come from. They had a keen awareness of what was going on right now and the fact that God was still working. And they had an absolutely unshakable conviction that God one day was going to bring justice into that place. They understood the mission of Jesus to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, the recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Do we believe those same things about the places where we live? That there's a history that matters in this place. Pay attention to that. That God is doing something right now in this place. And that one day, justice will come in this place. One of the things that really helps me envision these things is when I hear stories that people tell us about their own experience where God has worked somewhere in the past and then God's working currently and then this gives them hope to continue to move through the future. And we got really good feedback on the stories that we've shared so far. We're going to continue to do this and hopefully it becomes a regular part of what we do in our ministry here. Um, So I I wanted you to continue to think about the importance of place and God working and listen to another one of the stories. This is from uh, Karen Schumacher. I'd like to invite her forward at this time to share a part of her story with us. Let's welcome Karen. So good morning. So imagine, it's a Saturday afternoon, and I'm doing some local grocery shopping at the Walmart here on this side of town. And interestingly enough, I got to slow down with my shopping because my son wanted to go play at a friend's house for a couple of hours. So I got to go by myself and just take my time. So I wander over into the vitamin section. As I'm looking at the vitamins, a gentleman kind of catches my eye because he's right here next to me, creeped down, dressed a little oddly, and I'm not quite sure. So I, I step back and I look in his line of vision And he's watching two teenage girls. And I think, well, that's not right. 
So now I'm picking vitamins. I have no idea what I'm picking because I'm more concerned with what he's doing. And as he moved spots, I follow him with my cart. And it confirmed for me he was watching those girls because they had moved. So now I'm thinking, Lord, what do I do? What do I do? And all I could think of was two things. One, my daughter. And two, all of these teenage girls that are here that are part of our youth group that I lead. And without thinking, I went directly to those girls. And I said, who are you here with? And they said, my mom right there. Why? I said, there's a creeper watching you. You need to run to your mom right now. You need to tell her what's going on, and I'm going to go find help. And as they ran off and I see them talking to her mom, I turn, and that guy is in my face, this close. And he says, do you know what you just did? Do you know what you just did? Yeah. I gave him the truth. I said, I saved two girls from a creeper. He didn't like that. He said, and as he pulls out a chain with his ID on it, he was an undercover Walmart agent, which, what? (laughs) Didn't even know there was such a thing. And apparently he was watching to see that they were going to shoplift. I said, well, I guess I helped you out because they're afraid now that our creeper is watching them. But all he could do was yell at me and try to make me feel bad. And I explained from my point of view, look, I have a teenage daughter. I lead teenage girls in a youth group. All I could imagine was something was going to happen to them. Well, we couldn't see. He couldn't see my point of view. And I was so shaken, and I was crying so hard by that point because he was making me feel so bad for what I did. I just left. I left my cart. I left everything. I went out to my car, and I called my husband because I needed some reassurance that I had done the right thing. And as I calmed down, I was thinking, all right, what do I do now? Well, We are called to love one another. And that means even in the midst of Walmart or shopping and in the midst of danger, are we willing to do that? I wonder if I had been on a timetable trying to get through all of my grocery shopping, would I have even noticed him? Would I have done that? Well, there's more to the story. Because that happened like three or four years ago. I never think of myself as a courageous person, but as I have told that story, many people have said, wow, that took a lot of courage. And so I'm a, I'm a leadership development speaker. I'm a motivational speaker. And so as I tell that story, especially four months ago locally to a group of women, a lady came up to me afterwards and she said, I was the mom. That was my daughter and her friend. Thank you. And as we started to talk, I explained to her that it was by my faith, it was by God's grace that I had that courage to do that. And I had an opportunity to witness to her in that moment. So we never know the time or place of how God's going to use us. But more importantly, whatever that seed was that was planted three or four years ago, it was amazing to hear how God could use it now. And the best part is, it's not just my story. It's now her story, too, and her daughter's story.